Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We wrap up the, the Right in the Eye series today. I've gotten great feedback from this series. It's, I've learned a lot teaching you through this series. I, I, there's some things that I did not know, and I always love learning new things. So um, I was talking to a lady this morning with a young daughter, and she was telling me about how the, the, the sermon about Samson, she had her daughter here, and she said, Brett, that couldn't have been timed any better. We needed to hear that. She needed to hear that. So God knows what he's doing, and uh, I'm, my prayer is that today, you know, I'm, whenever I preach these, I don't know who's going to get what, but somebody in here needs to hear what's going to happen today, and uh, I just pray that that person is ready to hear it. If you were at the beginning of the series, I don't know if you remember, but it started off kind of crazy. <clears throat> I told you a story that was almost R-rated. Uh, I don't know if you remember that or not, but it's one of the most fantastic stories in all of ancient literature. Forget the Bible, just in all of ancient literature, but it happens to be found in the book of Judges. And we launched this series around the idea that there is something in all of us that wants to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it, and because we're Americans and we know we're supposed to be nice, we kind of add this little thing on the end, as long as nobody gets hurt. Well, that same idea permeated the, the, the culture in Israel, and um, that's really what this series has been about as we've looked at the book of Judges. That's exactly what everybody did in, in Judges, pretty much. In fact, if you look at the Old Testament book of Judges, the final statement is pretty much a summary of the 300-plus years of Israel's history of the Judges, and here's what it says. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And here's what I would say about that. There's a little bit of that in me, and there's a little bit of that in you, and there's a little bit in, of that in, in all of us, and the tragedy for Israel is, is exactly the same tragedy that it is for us, that God established the nation of Israel to do something extraordinary. He wanted to do something extraordinary through them. He wants to do something extraordinary through you. The thing is, Israel didn't really see it, and the thing is, we don't really see it oftentimes. We just say, ah, it's preacher talk, Brett. It's preacher talk. I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me. But God established the nation of Israel to be extraordinary. And instead of looking up, they looked around. And they saw a lot of things happening in the other nations. And time after time, they would go through this cycle. I've been showing it to you every week. They would disobey God. There would be great disaster and massive consequence for their choices and decisions. And then they would go to God in their trouble and they would plead with him to come help. And they did what we did when we were maybe 16, 17, 18 years old. When our mom and dad laid down the law and said, this is what you can and cannot do. And there were certain things that they said you can't do. And we thought, oh, yes, I can. You know, I'll do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it. And you'll never know. Only, amazingly, moms and dads, isn't it amazing how we find out things, right? And so we did those things and broke mom and dad's law and we exactly what they said would happen would happen and in some cases it involved a, a police officer and you're on the phone and you're saying mom dad you know I broke the law that you told me that I wasn't supposed to do and sure enough you were right hi ho they they've got me could you come help and that was Israel they, they did that over and over with God break the law suffer the consequence and God bail us out and then God would come running and he would bail them out that that was the the history of Israel and God would bail them out time and time again because he had made a promise. He had said, I'm going to use you whether you want to be used or not. 
I'm going to use you to be a light to the Gentiles, and I'm going to use you to be a light to the rest of the world, and you can work with me, or you can sit back and watch me work, but my purposes are going to be done on the earth. So this is a really dark time in the history of the nation of Israel, this, this period of the judges. God continues to work in spite of the fact that the nation had pretty much abandoned God over and over and over again. So today, I want to look at the Old Testament story and the character of Ruth, and it's Mother's Day, and Mom, just let me stop and tell you, you rock. Um, Many of you in this room are like mothers to me. I have been giving you hugs this morning, telling you Happy Mother's Day. I mean that sincerely. Um, You guys have been so incredibly good to me over the years, and and it's just, I, I want you to know we really do appreciate you. Moms, I hope your husbands and your families have taking great care of you. I know that we've had, them, we've had them filling rows and pews today, you know, because they came to church for mom. Good on you. Way to go. So um, I want to do the, the sermon on Ruth, and I want to do it on Mother's Day, and I just want to say, moms, you rock. So um, I know we talked about Ruth. I think we talked about Ruth back in January briefly. I did a series on Ruth in 09, I think. I thought I might do that series again soon, but not now, not that I, now that I've talked about it twice, because here's what happens with you guys. You take notes. You're like my mother. My mother used to take notes on our preacher, and she would write the date and write a sermon outline in the margins of her Bible, and then if he ever preached the same series over or the same sermon over, she'd walk out of church and go, mm-hmm, five years ago you preached that sermon. So now I've got people doing that to me. You know, I had people walking out, yeah, you preached that January, I think, 16th of 2016. Like, how do you know that? Because I wrote it down. So I thought I would preach on Ruth a big series. I'm not going to. This will be it for a while. You may or not may not know the story of Ruth. Uh, it's a beautiful story in the Bible. Um, probably the feedback we've gotten over the years, the, the series I did on Ruth was probably one of the favorites that we've ever done. Here's how the whole thing begins. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So if you, if you picture the Holy Land, if you look north and then over to the right uh, is the Dead Sea, and then a little further beyond that, down in the south, is the region of Moab. So there's a famine in Israel. They decide to leave Israel and go to Moab, and there's this man and this woman we pick up in verse 2. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. So you get the picture. You've got Naomi and Elimelech. They are leaving Bethlehem. They're heading to Moab. They're trying to survive, pretty much. It's, it's hard to live, and they're going to go to Moab and settle there because there's not enough food and there's not enough really to make a living in, in uh, Bethlehem. So they get there, their two sons, it's time for them to get married, and you know, they're, they're starting to look at these Moabite women. Now the problem with looking at the Moabite women is God said, I don't want you marrying Moabite women. There, there was a law in place. He said, I don't want you to marry foreign women. And a lot of people throughout the years have read the Bible and said, see, that's why, that's why God's against interracial marriage. God's not against interracial marriage. What God was against was he knew that if they married these foreign women, these foreign women came with foreign gods. They came with with false gods, and they brought those into the marriage, and God's whole thing was he was trying to keep the nation of Israel religiously pure. 
He did not want them bowing down. God is a jealous God, and he did not want them bowing down to another idol. So they're in Moab, and they're thinking, hey, when you're in Moab, do as the Moabites do. And so they marry their sons off to these two Moabite women. Time goes by, and Elimelech, the the patriarch, dies. So now it's Naomi and her two sons and her two daughters-in-law, the Moabite girls. And then her oldest son dies. What was that? Her oldest son dies, and then her next son dies, and here she is, a Jewish woman in Moab, in a foreign land. She doesn't know anybody. She's got these two Moabite daughters-in-law, and, and she's, that's all she's got. Well, Naomi decides, God is against me. He's cursed me. He really isn't for me. He doesn't love me. He doesn't hear my prayers. So she decides she's going to leave Moab and go back to Judah, back to Bethlehem, And so she looks at her daughters-in-law and she says, look, I'm going back where I came from. You're Moabites. You need to stay here in this region. You need to remarry. You're still young. You can still do that. Your life is ahead of you. I'm an old woman. I'm going to go back and try to cobble together some kind of living. It was going to be really hard for, for Naomi to go back home. But in her mind, you know, God has absolutely abandoned me. So one of the daughters-in-law decides she is going to stay in Moab. She's not going to return with Naomi. The other daughter-in-law looks, and her name is Ruth, and she looks at Naomi and she says, I'm going wherever you go. And this was a a, a really big deal. Um, This was a dangerous decision on Ruth's part. Uh, If you've been with us throughout this series, one of the things you've heard many times is that in this particular time in in their culture, women were viewed way differently than they are today. Back then they were viewed as property. They didn't have the rights they didn't they weren't viewed the same way as we as we view women today they aren't equals none of that stuff was going on and so Ruth looks at Naomi and she says no I'm going to stay with you I'm going to be where you are and Naomi says no it's dangerous you'll be in a foreign land you're a, a Moabite woman these are my people these are not your people and eventually I'm going to die and you will be a Moabite woman in a foreign country by yourself and it will be very dangerous for you We're not going to do that. And Ruth, in one of the most beautiful passages in all of ancient literature, forget that it's in the Bible, although it is, it is contained in the Bible, but in in all of literature, this is one of the most beautiful passages that's ever been written. Verse uh, 16 of chapter 2, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. In other words, Naomi, I'm going with you. So you get this picture of Ruth, this young Moabite widow, and Naomi, the older Israelite widow, make their way back around the Dead Sea. They go back to Bethlehem, and when they get to Bethlehem, people in Bethlehem begin to whisper about Naomi. Hey, isn't that Naomi? I thought they left. Where did they go? And they've been gone for some time. And it, when did they get back? And who is that woman that's, that's with her? And eventually, they would come around and they would say, hey, Naomi, what, what's happening? What happened to you? It's been years since we've seen you. You know, tell us the story of what's going on. And she says, don't call me Naomi. I want you to call me Mara. And Mara, in the Old Testament, the word Mara means bitter. So Naomi is looking at herself and she's saying, I'm bitter. I, I, I don't... I don't want to be called Naomi anymore. I'm I'm no longer Naomi. I'm bitter. 
And they said, well, you know, why are you bitter? And she responded in verse 21, the Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. In other words, there is no God, and if there is a God, he certainly doesn't know my name. There is no God, and if there is a God, he certainly isn't listening to my prayers. There is no God, and if there is, then all these stories we've heard about God where he's interested in us, he's clearly not interested in me. And in a moment, it is as if Naomi becomes a microcosm for the whole nation of Israel that basically looked at God and said, God is no longer the God of Israel. He's not really interested in us. We think he's abandoned us, so we're going to do our own thing. But here's something interesting. 3,500 years after the story of Naomi, we know her name. 3,500 years later, this woman who thinks God has forgotten her, we're in church talking about her story. And she didn't even know it was going to go down like that. Now the story continues, and when Naomi and Ruth arrive back in Bethlehem, it's, it's barley harvest season. This is important to the story, so let me explain a little bit about barley harvest. There would be landowners, and they would have barley planted in their acres and acres of fields. There would be plenty of barley, and they would send their workers into the field to harvest that barley. But here's what God said about that. God said, you can go in, you can harvest one time, and then anything that you leave behind, leave it on the ground, and other people, poor people, widows, can come in, and they can pick up what they need so that they can live and survive and let them have the leftovers. This is one of the ways that the Israelites were able to take care of the people among them that were less fortunate than them. So Naomi says to Ruth, listen, we're not going to make it unless you go and glean in the fields. I'm too old to do it. My body won't let me do it. But you can go because you're a widow. They'll let you go into the field and you can glean for us. You can bring things back. And when you bring stuff back, we'll either have stuff to eat or we can sell it for money and we can survive that way. So Ruth goes into one of these random fields. It's, it's very dangerous for her. Again, women are viewed way differently then. And um, she's, she's going in and she's picking up all this stuff that with all these other people that are scattered throughout all these fields And this is a male-dominated society. Not only that, she has no protector. There is no protection for, uh, for Ruth. She is a foreigner. She is a Moabite woman widow. Well, it just so happens that the field that she chooses to enter is it belongs to a man named Boaz. Boaz, as we find out later, is actually a distant relative of Naomi's husband Elimelech, who had passed away. We don't know, they don't know that at the time. We find that out later. In the story. And so Boaz goes out into his fields. He sees this foreign woman out in the field gleaning, and he looks at one of his guys and he says, Hey, who is that woman out there among the Israelites that's that's picking up food? And so he, he asks one of his friends this, and the friend says, You know, that's that woman that came back with Naomi from Moab. Her, that's Ruth. Um, she came back with Naomi. By now, the story of Ruth and Naomi has permeated the, the community. They have begun to hear about Naomi. They've begun to hear about this woman who's, who's come all the way back around, back to Bethlehem with Naomi to stay by her side, even though she didn't have to do that. And everybody has begun to hear about this woman named Ruth, um, that she had left, even though it meant leaving her family and leaving her culture and leaving everything that was familiar. She's made this dangerous trek around the Dead Sea back into the city of Bethlehem. So the rumors had spread about this Moabite woman, and Boaz is impressed by what he sees and what he hears. 
In fact, he had a conversation later on in the story, and here's what he has to say. Um, here, here's what he said to Ruth. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. In other words, we've all heard how you've remained faithful to Naomi, and we, we think that's pretty cool. How you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with people you did not know before. Now, she's never been to this part of the world. She's never been to Israel. And listen to what he says. This is so out of character with everything else going on in this time in in, in Israel's history. He looks at her and he says, verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. In other words, Boaz is saying, I still believe that God is a God of honor. I still believe that God is a God of cause and effect. I still believe that God respects those who make the right decisions. May the Lord repay you for what you have done May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel. To, 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 the, to the very God that Naomi had assumed had given up on her and abandoned her, he said, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So then Boaz looks at his servants and he says, basically, don't touch her. I, I don't know what the practices were, but... I guess in that culture, women out in the field probably at times were harassed by the workers of a guy like Boaz, and maybe Boaz knew that, and, and um, I don't know whether he tried to crack down on it or not, but when it came to Ruth, he looked at them and gave very strong instructions. She is not to be touched. You do not molest her. You do not bother her. You don't, you don't harass her in any way. You let her take all she wants. She's an honorable woman. She's done an honorable thing. She's not simply a foreigner who has wandered into our world and is trying to take advantage of our uh, generosity to people. That's not what she's trying to do. She's trying to make a living to take care of this older woman. You treat her with respect, Boaz said. So as a result of that, she is very successful. She gleans a lot, and eventually she comes to have a conversation with her mother-in-law, Naomi, in which Naomi says, where are you gleaning? You're bringing back so much stuff. We're so blessed. What's going on with you? And she said, well, I've been gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz. And Naomi, her eyes light up. And she thinks to herself, Boaz? I think my husband Elimelech was related to a Boaz somehow distantly. So time goes by. Things are working out. Naomi's getting a little older. Ruth is getting a little older. And finally, one day, Naomi looks at Ruth And she says, look, I mean, not in so many words, but basically what she's saying is, you got to get married. Um, I'm going to die, and once I die, you're going to be in this culture and in this land all by yourself, and that wouldn't be a good thing. You need a covering. You need to be married. And so Naomi decides that Ruth needs to find what they call a kinsman redeemer. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that expression or not. I'm going to try to explain to you what a kinsman redeemer is. Maybe you have in your family what we have come to affectionately refer to as a rich uncle. Any of you have a rich uncle? And maybe he's not even related to you, but is there some guy that your family knows that, that if, if your family ran into trouble, you would kind of look to him to help you out? You know, usually this guy has got more money than God, and whenever there's a problem in your family, he's the guy that kind of helps, and you, you say to yourself, okay, we'll just go to Uncle Ralph and Uncle Ralph will help us figure this out. We aren't really related exactly, but he's the richest person we know, and he's kind of family. And That's kind of what a kinsman redeemer was like. The kinsman redeemer was the person in the family that when people got into trouble, that's who they went to. And in this culture, 
A kinsman redeemer did not have to step in and take care of things, but he, he oftentimes would do that to help someone. He was also known as the Avenger. Now, if you're younger, I'm not talking about a Marvel character, okay? He wasn't running around in a cape and tights. It wasn't that kind of thing. This person would step in and step up to help a family member that was in distress. Essentially, there were four things that a kinsman redeemer would be asked to do. The first would, would be he would be asked to protect impoverished family members. If a family member fell into poverty, they could go to the kinsman redeemer and say, you know, I need a loan or can you help me get my house back or, you know, will you help me out in some way? Another thing that might happen is a kinsman redeemer would help you to recover or repurchase lost property. Maybe if there was a lien placed on your house or, um, you know, they had gambling back then too and once in a while someone would lose their home while they were gambling, oftentimes that a kinsman redeemer would be uh, sought out and asked if he would help to, to bail somebody out of a situation like that. Um, they could redeem people that were sold as slaves. Many times if you fell into debt, um, the person that you owed money to would be able to come, and if you couldn't pay the loan back, they could actually press you into service and make a slave out of you. What they really liked to do is they would use one of your kids because they were younger and more, uh, more able to work. And so if you fell into debt, it was possible that your kids could be taken as slaves. And if that ever happened, you would go to the kinsman redeemer and say, hey, they've taken my son or daughter into slavery. Can you help me buy them back? That's the redeemer part of this. And um, in extreme circumstances, a kinsman redeemer would be asked to provide a male heir for male relatives, um, when a male relative had died and there was no male relative, the kinsman redeemer would actually step in and help to provide a, a relative to keep the family line going and the family name going. So Naomi says to Ruth, this young Moabite widow, we need to find a kinsman redeemer for you. Well, that wasn't going to happen for Ruth. Ruth is not an Israelite. She wasn't even Jewish. Uh, she's, not in, she's, she's not from Bethlehem. She's a Moabite woman. She's out of her culture and out of her land. So the way this would work, in order for someone to be Naomi's kinsman redeemer, they would have to marry um, Ruth. That's, that's how that was going to go down. And so marrying Naomi doesn't make any sense. Naomi is beyond childbearing years, so that, that's not going to work either. So she can't, she's too old to have kids. So we find out in this story, along with all of this, that there's a piece of property that's in question. And it's not really clear what's going on there, whether Elimelech lost the property or couldn't pay for it or owed money on it or what, but uh, somehow they're thinking, we've got to get this property back. So there was an estate in question, and so Naomi says to Ruth, we need to find for you a kinsman redeemer. And then she says to Ruth, Ruth, um, and these are her terms, not really, or these are our terms, not really theirs necessarily, but she basically looks at Ruth and says, you need to ask Boaz to marry you. Now, can you imagine being Ruth, and, and there's this guy, Boaz, and she's not even sure Boaz knows her name. She's not even sure Boaz know, knows much about her at all. She says, you need to ask Boaz to be our kinsman redeemer, but understand, this is equal to a marriage proposal, Ruth, and if he steps in to be our kinsman redeemer, he would need to marry you. I need you to ask Boaz to marry you. Now, in our highly sexualized culture, when people read this story, they read things in there that just really are not true. They're, you know, they're picturing this hot Moabite woman out in the field, and then 
65-year-old Boaz comes along, and all of his other wives are old, and he's tired of them, and he's kind of looking like, hey, you know, Ruth, how you doing? It's not in there, okay? I know some of you ladies like to read romance novels, and you read this story, and you're like, oh, you know, Boaz is so awesome. Uh, he's... No. No. It's not in there like that. It's not even insinuated, honestly. In fact, the opposite is true. This was a very risky venture for, for Boaz. Any, anybody that was going to be a kinsman redeemer, if, especially to be a kinsman redeemer for a foreign woman, uh, and here's why, because once she becomes a part of the estate, and, and really, he becomes responsible for her. She really becomes property for him. You, you not only were responsible for her, you're responsible for her children and for her family, and if something happens to your sons and she's got sons, then your estate would fall to her sons. So there's a, a lot of, this is a risky thing, very sacrificial decision for anybody to make. So Ruth is, is She's, you know, in this very powerful narrative, in the most appropriate way that fit that culture, she goes to Boaz and she humbly asks him, knowing that he could say no, and knowing that he probably would say no, she goes to Boaz and she says, you know, it's one thing for you to let me glean in your field, it's one thing for you to protect me from your servants, but to marry me, uh, to bring my family and my liabilities that, that you don't even know, you know, I mean, um, I'm from the other side of the Dead Sea, and, and you don't know what's on the other side of the Dead Sea, you don't know anything about my family, so she goes to Boaz, and she makes this request, Boaz, would you be my avenger, would you be my, my kinsman redeemer, and he says yes, he says yes to her, but he says, here's the hitch, there's one hitch, you have a relative that is even closer to Naomi than me, and he gets first dibs on this. He gets first right of refusal on this whole estate and on you. Boaz is an honorable man, and he says, look, we're going to trust the process. I'm not going to go behind this guy's back. He's really first in line to be offered this kinsman redeemer role, and I don't know whether he's going to want to take it or not, but we're going to offer it to him. We're not cheating the process on this, and so that's what's got to happen. We're going to play this by the law that God has established, and, and though everybody else has abandoned God, I'm going to keep the law of God. And so Boaz says to Ruth, if you want me to, I will go on your behalf and I will make the request to this other relative of Naomi's and see if he wants to be your kinsman redeemer. So he does. He goes to this guy and he says, hey, look, Naomi, through Ruth, has asked me to be the kinsman redeemer and there's a piece of property that I would need to purchase. And as a part of that property, Naomi and Ruth and whatever they have and whoever they're related to, they would be a part of that deal. So she's asked me if you would like to be the kinsman redeemer, are you willing to do that? And so here's what that conversation sounds like between Boaz and this other guy. Uh, Ruth chapter 4 verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land, he's talking to this other guy, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. So she's property. You buy the land, Ruth comes with the land the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So you get the property, that's a pretty good deal. You also get Ruth, don't know whether that's a good deal or not. You have to have children with her or at least attempt to have kids with her. And if she has a son, that son will be in line as to, be a, to take part of your inheritance if you choose to do all this. She, he, that child's going to have something to say about your estate. 
And so he asked this guy, are you willing to do that? Listen to his response in verse 6 of chapter 4. At this, the guardian redeemer, this is, that's just another name for the kinsman redeemer. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. In other words, this is way too risky for me, this guy's saying. I don't know anything about this woman. You know, who knows what her crazy Moabite family is like over in Moab, across on the other side of the Dead Sea. I don't know who's going to show up on my doorstep once we get married. You know, I don't know what what a father-in-law situation is going to be like. Christmas is going to be really complicated for us if I do that, you know. Um, Nobody will accept her, and, and, you know, she doesn't speak our language. So if you want her, you take her, no thanks, I'm, I'm refusing on the right of first refusal, I'm refusing. And Boaz, this honorable man who recognizes the honor in Ruth, who returned with her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law who had decided, God is not watching over me anymore. God has abandoned me. He doesn't really care about me. She's the one who said, I'm bitter. You know, the Almighty has forgotten me. Boaz marries Ruth. And you hear that and you think, oh, that's such a great story. And that could be the end of the story. This honorable man in his culture, one of the last few honorable men in that culture, does the honorable thing and takes a risk and marries this Moabite woman in order to honor his distant relative and make sure she has a covering and a protection. That could be the end of the story. Except God made a promise to Israel. And God keeps his promises. And even though Israel wasn't going to cooperate, God didn't back down and back away from what he promised. And so Ruth and Boaz are married. They have a son, and that son's name is Obed. And Obed grows and gets married. Eventually, Naomi is going to die. Eventually, Boaz is going to die. But there's this tender part in the story where Naomi, while she's still alive, is holding her grandson, Obed. And she looks at this baby, and she says, God has been faithful to me After all, I gave up on God and decided that God had abandoned me. God has not abandoned me. He has enabled me to live long enough to see this child born to to my daughter-in-law, Ruth, and I'm getting to hold Obed. God is alive. He's allowed me to receive this blessing, and, and I've seen God redeem me and my family. And then Naomi dies, and Boaz dies, and eventually Ruth dies. But Obed grows up and is married, and Obed has a son as well. And Obed's son's name is Jesse. And Jesse has a whole bunch of sons, and years go by, and one day God speaks to a prophet named Samuel, and he says, Samuel, I'm about to do something new in the nation of Israel. It's going to be different than what we've had going on. I'm going to start a brand new era. I'm about to do something that will have ramifications for thousands and thousands of years, Samuel, I need a man. I need you to go to the house of Jesse because I am going to select for the nation of Israel a king. And so we find out about that in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He says, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of what city? Bethlehem. Jesse, the son of Obed. Obed, the son of Boaz, who took a risk and married a Moabite woman in an era when it seemed like God had abandoned the nation. He said, I have chosen this one to be a king for the nation. And so Samuel shows up at Jesse's house. 
He says, Jesse, I need you to line up all your sons, get them out here in front of me because God's about to pick a king from your family. Now think about it, if you're Jesse, this is a pretty good day. You've got all these sons and one of them, and you would even look at at Samuel and say, just take one, right, any one, because I'm going to be the the dad of of the king of Israel. It's a good day for me. So Jesse lines up all of his sons. Samuel takes a look at the oldest one. He looks like a king. He walks like a king, talks like a king, and Samuel's thinking, this has got to be the guy. And God says, no, that's not the king. Samuel looks at the next son, and he's thinking, maybe this one. And God says, no, that's not the king. They go all the way through all of Jesse's sons, and God keeps saying, no, the king is not among these people. So Samuel looks at Jesse, and he pretty much says, Samuel, or Jesse, I know I've got the right address, okay? I know I'm in the right house. Do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, there's this kid in the back that's, you know, he's my youngest, but he's not a king. And Samuel says, go get him. Go get him. I'm not going to sit down until you have that son in front of me. And onto the pages of history walked David, the son of Jesse. Jesse, the son of Obed. Obed, the son of Boaz. Who was, who was married to Ruth, who was faithful to her mother-in-law and moved from Moab to Bethlehem with Naomi. Years go by. Many years later, another prophet, Nathan, speaks to David on behalf of God. And here's what the, here's what, uh, the prophet Nathan says to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And from this prophecy, all the Jewish people understood that from that day forward, if there was ever going to be a Messiah, if there was ever going to be a savior of the world, if there was ever going to be a king who would reign forever and ever, that king would come from the line and the lineage of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, husband of Ruth, the Moabite. And David had a son, and he had a son, and he had a son, and 25 Pregnancies later, according to the gospel writer Matthew, here's what Matthew says. Eliezer, the father of Nathan, Nathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And 25 or so pregnancies later, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is born on Christmas Day. And throughout his life, he would be referred to as, the, as not only the Messiah, he would be referred to as the Son of God, but he would also be referred to as Jesus, Son of David, because he was born in the city of David, Bethlehem, the home of Naomi, who would bring a Moabite woman named Ruth, who would marry Boaz, who would have a son, who would have a son, who would have a son. And many years later, through many different generations, Jesus would walk on to the pages of history. And when Jesus was born all those years later, wise men sought him out. And they announced to his family and to anybody that would listen that it wasn't simply a baby that had been born, but that a king had been born to the world on that day. And not only did they believe he was a king, King Herod believed he was a king and did everything he could to wipe Jesus out. And many, many years later, Jesus would stand in front of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, Judea, appointed by Tiberius, the ruler of Rome. 
And Pilate would say to Jesus just moments before sentencing him to execution, he would say, are you a king? And Jesus would look Pilate right in the eye and he would stare down the power of Rome and he would say, it is as you say, I am a king, but I am not only just a king of the Jews. Don't misunderstand me, Pilate. John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's not simply, a, I'm not simply the king of the Jews. I've not simply come to reign in the hearts of men. I, it's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of conscience. I've come to reign and rule through men and women all over the world. Yes, I am a king, but I'm not a king maybe the way you think I am. And what's really interesting about Pilate is this. If it were not, Pilate in the time of Jesus was probably one of the most popular men in the region. Everybody knew who Pilate was. Today, you would not know Pilate's name. Pilate would be a nobody in history were it not for the person of Jesus. Jesus, the king, who leveraged his power for the powerless. Jesus, the king, who did what no other king had ever imagined or thought of doing. Jesus, who turned it all around and did not make his subjects die for him, he would die for his subjects and his followers. And yes, Jesus was a king. He is the king who gives to every single one of us the opportunity. He is the king who extends the invitation to every single one of us to invite him in. And you have the opportunity this morning to make a singular decision that might change the outcome of the rest of your life. The decision to let Jesus rule the throne of your heart. To not simply say, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, with whom I want to do it, as long as nobody gets hurt. The King, the Lord, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ wants to sit on the throne of your heart. So I would invite you today to ask yourself this question. Am I going to continue to say, I'll do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as nobody gets hurt? Or, Lord, you rule my heart. I want to do what you call me to do. God, I'm inviting you to be the king of my heart. I yield to you the throne of my heart and invite you to be the ruler of my life. And that singular decision could revolutionize your life. There's a picture in the Old Testament as I close There's a picture in the Old Testament of Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And it's just a patient knock. The thing about Jesus, and I've said this several times in this series, he is not going to overpower you. Jesus is not going to push into your life if you don't want him to be there. He very patiently, quietly, consistently knocks on the door of your heart. And maybe you were born and grew up in church. Maybe you've heard sermon after sermon and you've thought, man, Brett, I walked away so long ago and I've done so much stuff, I don't know if I can ever come back. Here's what I would say to you. Yes, you can come back. Just like the Israelites who over and over again went through this period of disobedience and disaster and then deliverance and God time after time after time delivers the nation of Israel. I don't care how far you've wandered away You have not outrun the stretch of God's arm. You you have not outrun his love. Whatever you've done is not worse or bigger than his mercy and his grace for you. And I've said this many times, but here's something that you need to know. God cannot love you more than he loves you. 
and he will not love you less. He is a God of grace. And if you have wandered off and you want to come back and you're saying, man, I just want to come home, that can happen for you today. If you've never given your life to Christ, uh, I would love to talk to you about that. Maybe you're not ready to just walk down an aisle and give your life to Christ. I get that. You might want to talk to somebody. I'm available to you. Our staff is available to you. The person that brought you to church today is available to you. But if that's something that you hear, if you hear the knock, you never know when your life comes to an end and the knock stops. I encourage you to give your life to Christ. Let's pray together as we close. Father, it's our desire that our life would glorify you. It's our desire that we would not go through this process of disobedience and disaster and deliverance all over again. But Lord, the the Bible tells us we're sinners. And because of that, it's just, it's, it's who we are and we need you. We're going to mess things up. We're not going to get it right all of the time. And sometimes we are going to suffer great consequences for our choices. But Lord, you're always there. You never turn your back. You never walk away. You do let us face the consequences of our choices. But you are our deliverer. And you love us. And we are forgiven. So Father, for those of us in the room this morning, we stand before you forgiven and very, very thankful. And it's our prayer that we would go out this week and live better than we did last week. Not because we get points, not because you'll love us more, but simply so that we can honor and glorify you. Father, for the one who's never given their life to Christ, I pray that that they would be able to hear you knock on the door of their heart. I pray that they would be able to hear you call in their name. I pray that they would understand that this isn't about trying to be something they're not, but that this is about receiving the one thing that they need more than anything else. They need to be forgiven. They need a Savior. So Lord, all of us in this room this morning corporately bow before you and we worship your holy name. We tell you that we love you and we're so thankful to be able to call you Savior. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray.